Close to uh, Proverbs chapter 14, actually, even though we're finishing up 1 Kings. We have just a few chapters left, but there's a lot of meaty stuff in those chapters. Stephen, it'll be good. Proverbs chapter 14. I'm going to do my best not to get on any soapboxes tonight, but it's hard not to, uh, especially what you see in 1 Kings and what you see in the world around you. But um, the first thing I want to say, we're going to talk about chapter 16. And there's only 16 to 22, so we'll be able to get through this, I I trust, unless I rip wax tangent, I don't know. But uh, I want to talk about in chapter 16, the turmoil sin brings to a nation. And there is an amazing object lesson here in chapter 16 of what sin brings to a nation, uh, politically. Look at Proverbs chapter 14. I'm sorry, I don't know what I said. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34 is a great verse and a great principle. Proverbs 14, verse 34. Righteousness exalteth a nation. Amen? Amen. When a nation does right by God, it will be blessed. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Okay, now the rest of the verse is the balance of our God. But sin is a reproach to any people. When a nation does right by God, it will be blessed. When a nation thumbs its nose at God, it will be judged. There are no exceptions in that verse to any people. Look at Psalm 144. Give me another one. Psalm 144 and look at verse number 15. Psalm 100, thank you, Josh. Psalm 144, verse number 15. Psalm 144, verse 15. When you're there, say amen. Amen, 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 amen. Follow the yellow road. <laughs> 144 verse 15. This again has millennial implications, but we could take something from it. Happy is that people that is in such a case, has no complaining in our streets, that's verse 14. Yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. This is national now. This is talking about groups of people, not just individuals. And when Israel walked with God in the past, they were happy. We saw that under Solomon. Happy are thy servants, right? And when Israel walks with Jesus Christ in the millennium, in the future, you know what there's going to be? Peace and joy and happiness, right? They're going to be happy. I know sometimes it's hard to get happy now, but you're going to be happy when you walk with Jesus Christ, and that nation is going to be happy when it walks with Jesus Christ, like it was happy when it was serving under Solomon. But go to Psalm chapter 9 now. One more psalm. Psalm chapter 9. Let me give you the antithesis of that thought. I wish one of the talking heads would say these verses. But nobody ever does. Nobody asks me for my opinion, so I'll just give it to you. Psalm 9, 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations, plural, that forget God... (laughs) When a nation walks with God, there's happiness. When a nation forgets God, that nation is going to hell. Now, literally, that, we, that will be fulfilled in the future. You read Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Jesus Christ is going to come back. 
He is going to judge the nations, and some are going to, into his kingdom, and some are going to go into everlasting punishment. Right? Matthew 25, verse 46, if you want to read that cross-reference. So there is a literal doctrinal fulfillment that the nations that forget, forget God will literally be turned into hell. But guess what? There is a spiritual truth we could take away from this right now today, and this warning for us spiritually, that if a nation turns against God, that nation's going to hell. I don't just mean their soul. I mean that nation is going to hell. Look at some of the cities around your country. Look at some of the countries that repudiated God. I could speak from experience. I've been to Haiti. I've seen Port-au-Prince. It's the closest thing to probably hell on earth. Right? What is it? It's a nation that has repudiated God, that has vowed itself to Satan, right? is, is practiced voodoo, is all sorts of idolatry is there. You know what that nation is? I just said it to my wife when I was there. I said, it looks like Satan raped the country. That's what it's like when you walk around. You come out of the airport, and it's all Western, and you see you know, white folks in there and Europeans in there, and then you step out, and it's like, wham, there's about 100 people trying to grab your bags and, and take your bags, and you just step out. And we drove on that school bus back to Maurice's estate, and it was, I could not believe what I saw. And then we went to a refugee camp after one of the earthquakes there. And my pastor, who at the time, Pastor Mike Veach, who'd been on close to 50 mission trips all over the world, said, this is the poorest thing I've ever seen on earth. I mean, kids running around, naked people living in shacks and tins and pieces of cardboard that said, like, USO on it. And that was their house. And we, you know what it is? And I, don't, I feel terrible for them. This is not against them. But when a nation forgets God, that nation is going to hell, man. It's going to hell. Why? Sin destroys everything it touches. Everything. Spiritually, we know that. Physically, we know that. Emotionally, we know that. And politically, politically, it destroys everything. Look what we're seeing in 1 Kings. Sin has split the kingdom. Sin has divided the nation and led to the demise and the destruction of the greatest nation the world up until that time had ever seen. The nation of Israel was a shining light, a beacon known worldwide. People came from all over the place, like Sheba, to hear the wisdom of Solomon and just to see what God had done with this little nation called Israel. And now, my goodness, they're falling apart, right? You starting to see the parallels yet? Amen. To the U.S. of A.? A nation, great nation, a nation known worldwide. What is it doing? It's getting ripped in half. Not because of geopolitics, not because of abortion rights, not because of, you know, uh, economic nuance, because of sin. It's ripping the nation apart. Uh, And now I want to just show you what happens. I want to show you how crazy it gets. Go back to 1 Kings. I'm going to show you how crazy it gets. I want to show you in this chapter. That the northern kingdom, and when I say Israel now, I mean the northern kingdom, right? Those ten tribes that went into the north. Remember from last week? That northern kingdom has four kings in about a year. It gets so tumultuous and there's such turmoil and such political upheaval because of the idolatry and the iniquity that's crept into a once God-fearing nation. Look at it. 1 Kings 15, 27. I just want to show it to you. I'm trying. I'm not getting on my soapbox. I'm just, I'm dancing around it. 1 Kings 15, 27. Ready? Let's start with Basha, right? He's going to be number one, right? Basha. Right? That's king number one. You want to see how he got the power? Look at verse 27. 
and Basha of 15. Basha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, meaning Nadab, the previous ruler, and Basha smote him at Gibbethim, which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadab and all Israel did siege, laid siege to Gibbethim. Even in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, did Basha slay him and reigned in his stead. So please notice, number one, Basha murders his predecessor, assassinates his predecessor to get the throne. This is what's going on in Israel now. He's king number one, okay? Look at chapter 16, look at verse 8. Basha dies, okay? And it says in 1 Kings 16, 8, in the 20 and 6th year of Asa, king of Judah, that's what's going on in the south, began Elah, the son of Basha, to reign over Israel in Terzah. Two years. He's beginning this reign, and Elah is the second king that pops up. Notice we're in the 26th year of Asa, so that's where we're starting. Basha dies, and Elah takes the throne. You want to know what happens to Elah? Look at verse number 9 and 10. 9 and 10. And his servant, Zimri, captain of half his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Terza, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Terza. And Zimri went in and smote him and killed him in the 20 and 7th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his stead. So now we've got Zimra assassinates Elah while the king is drunk and he takes over. So now we've got Zimri assassinated Elah and he's in power. Elah's getting wasted, he's getting drunk, and Zimri rises up and kills him. This is going on in about a year. And Zimri has the shortest reign of any king in the Bible. He reigns for seven days. What a, what a, what a campaign. He reigns for seven days. Right? Come on, man. And he reigns for seven days. And look at verse number 15. All right? Look at verse number... Look what happens here. 15. All right? In the 20 and 7th year of Asa, so this has just happened over the span of a year, right? Verse 8 says in the 20 and 6th year, Basha dies and Elah Elah takes the throne. In the 20 and 7th year of Asa, king of Judah, did Zimri reign seven days in Terzah, and the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. Now look at verse 16. Who takes over next? And the people that were encamped heard say, Zimri hath conspired. Hey, if it works the first time to steal the throne, hey, let's try it the second time. All right? Then the third time. And they heard, the people that were encamped heard say, Zimri hath conspired and hath slain the king. Wherefore, all Israel made Amri the captain of the host, king over Israel that day in the camp. And Amri uh, went up from Gibbethon and all Israel with him, and they besieged Tirzah. Now, read verse 18. Watch this now. And it came to pass when Zimri saw that the city was taken. Now, watch this that he went into the palace of the king's house and burnt the king's house over him with fire and died. So the people make Amri king, that's king number four in about a year span, and Zimri runs into the king's palace, sets it on fire, and kills himself rather than face his persecutors as an assassinators. Can you just take this in? This has happened over the course of about a year. They've had four rulers. They've had almost, right? All these are assassinations, murders, conspiring, rebellion, coups. This is what's going on in Israel. Why? Sin. Think, just just bring it home because it's getting close to home. Think of all the turmoil and rest in this country if there were four presidents in one year. 
four presidents one year, and they're getting taken out by assassination. You said, that could never happen here. Write it down, honey. It's getting real close to your doorsteps. This stuff happens in Haiti. This stuff happens in third world countries, right? Where they kill the leader, kill the leader, kill the leader. That's the kind of stuff that's going on here in Israel, which was the head of the nations, which was a glowing and shining light. They're whacking each other left and right like a bunch of mafia thugs. Look at all the turmoil sin brings to a nation Israel that knew God. You know why? The further Israel gets from God, and the northern kingdom went right into apostasy, man. Jeroboam set up the false system, and they start worshiping idols right from the jump. Judah still had, you know, the temple, and they had a little, some good kings. But the northern kingdom, man, they're setting up idols. They're worshiping in Jeroboam's false system right from jump. They're all wicked, and sin tears that country apart. I mean, they're killing each other left and right. Look at some of these kings. Look at 16.7. Look at Basha. Here's why Basha didn't please God. Look at the middle of the verse. It says, uh, and I'll, I'll read it from the top. And also by the hand of the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, came the word of the Lord against Basha and against his house, even for all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam and because he killed him, right? Basha had done evil in the sight of God and he angered God. That's what we're seeing. That's the kind of leaders we're getting. Right? Look at verse number 9. We read it already. Eli's a drunk. That's some leader you got. A drunk. So drunk that someone could walk up and whack him. Right? What What a disgusting, poor excuse for a leader. The king of Israel is a drunken loser. Verse number 19. Right? Look at 19. 19. Zimri dies. Why? For his sins which he sinned in doing evil on the side of the Lord, in walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he did to make Israel sin. Zimri's no better. He's a wicked rebel who's plunging the country into idolatry. And look at verse 25. Want to see Amri? Amri's no better either. Verse 25. But Amri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. We're getting progressively worse and worse and worse and worse. And Amri is the worst king Israel saw until King Ahab comes along. And then Ahab takes the cake as the worst king Israel ever saw. You know what the Bible tells us in Proverbs thirteen fifteen: The way of transgressors is hard. The way of transgressors is hard. They're not bringing in peace and prosperity. They're not bringing in joy and happiness. They're not bringing in goodness and blessings and God's favor. They're bringing in murder, strife, idolatry, division, turmoil, tumultuousness. That's what they're bringing in. Why? Because sin destroys everything it touches. Sin brings turmoil wherever it touches. If it touches your life, your family, and your nation. When you got people who were only voting so they could preserve the right to murder someone in the womb, God help you. Because the Bible says, God hates those that shed innocent blood, the hands that shed innocent blood. So if you think bringing those people in are going to somehow bring prosperity and peace and happiness, again, whatever you're on, give me a puff, because it must keep you really inebriated to the fact that you are just sending the country down a spiral where you could flush it faster. That's what's going on, folks. That's what's happening. And I'm going to tell you this, and you know, used to be in the old days that you, the preacher would get up in the pulpit and make the politicians quake. I know we're not in that place right now, but I'm going to say it to you, and I'm going to say it to the world. The further Israel, the further America, like Israel, gets from God, mark it down. 
the more violence and turmoil you're going to see in our land. Amen. You're going to see more rioting. Amen. You're going to see more violence. You're going to see more murder. You're going to see more all that kind of stuff. You can't beat the book. Amen. And if it happened to Israel, the further they got from God, the more wars, the more weakness, the more invasions, the more assassinations, the more coups, the more junk like this happened, the further they got from God. What makes you think that we're an exception to the rule? Amen. If God will let His chosen people go through this because of sin, you better mark it down that God will let the God bless the USA go through it. You can't thumb your nose at God and expect Him to smile. And when a people, listen man, when a people forsake God, you get turmoil. You get a divided nation that was once unified degenerating into tribalism. And that's what you got in 2022, man. You got tribalism. Somebody said a long time ago, it's back to the Bible or it's back to the jungle. And we're going back to might makes right and numbers win out. And it's not about law and order. It's not about right and wrong anymore. It's about I got more and I got control and I got power. And you'll submit to what I say. That's where it's all kind of going in the happy Thanksgiving coming up. God bless you. Happy Veterans Day. You know, but I mean, it's, we got some boys that like fought for something that meant something. That's a blessing. And it's, it's a tragedy to see it trod underfoot and so flippantly just cast aside. But why do people do that? Because of sin. I wish the pundits would give me just five minutes. We could tell them in five minutes why things are falling apart. Why? It doesn't matter that Israel had a heritage of knowing God. Their sin tore their country apart. And it doesn't matter that America has a heritage of knowing Jesus Christ. Sin will tear your country apart. Why? We read it earlier. Sin is a reproach, a blight, a judgment, a curse to any people. Any people can't get away with it. So we got to take a lesson. Now, you can't change the tide of the country, but you can change your tide. You can make yourself be as holy and as burning a shining light as possible and see if you can infect the ones around you with the light of Jesus Christ. And then you can, you know, God always takes care of His own. God always takes care of His own. Even if you're in Babylon, God always takes care of His own. Amen. Amen? So don't be nervous. Don't be scared. Don't be, oh man, that was just a trickle. That wasn't a wave. Don't get nervous about all that stuff. You know what? We all had the blues, literally and figuratively. But you know what? It's a reminder this world is not our home. Don't lose sight of the mission. The mission is, we're getting out of here. Let's take as many people as we can with us. And let's stand for righteousness. Let me not get ahead of myself. All right. Chapter 17 to 20. Did that offend anybody? No, right? Good. Okay. Chapter 17 to 20. 17 to 20 is introducing Ahab and Jezebel. Nobody names their kids Ahab and Jezebel. I wonder why. <laughs> oh, you having a girl? What are your names? Stephanie, Jennifer, Melissa, Amelia, and Jezebel. No, Jezebel never makes the list because her name is notorious. That's why they don't name kids Judas, right? Uh, who is Ahab? All right. These people here, when we enter Ahab and Jezebel, we get a great, great picture of the Great Tribulation. We really start to see the Great Tribulation foreshadowed here. Ahab is going to represent for you... The Antichrist. All right? And uh, Ahab is really the worst king Israel ever saw. Look at verse number 30 of chapter 16. God tells you he's the worst king Israel ever saw. 
Um, and Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Don't you wish somebody would really follow the science and really be empirical and say, gee, this sin route isn't making things better. Maybe I should turn around and do something different, but they just keep plunging. They just keep getting worse and worse and worse. It just keeps rotting away, and that sin keeps destroying things. So Ahab is a picture of the Antichrist. Jezebel, please notice Jezebel in verse 31. 31. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Not enough that he was an idolater. (laughs) He goes a little further. He took to wife, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, that's an interesting root name, Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So Jezebel is not an Israelite, right? That would make her a strange woman, a foreign woman, right? Jezebel is the strange woman of Proverbs that we read about last week. She is that false spirit and that false system that's at work in the Great Tribulation, right? She's leading and worshiping the devil with Ahab. She's working with Ahab to go worship Baal. Don't you remember that that strange woman, we saw it over and over again last week, she has a house. She's not just a spirit, she's got a system. She's got a house, That strange woman. Um, You don't have to turn there, but you might want to write this verse down. Revelation 2.20 is the only other time that Jezebel is mentioned. That's the only time Jezebel is mentioned in the New Testament. Revelation 2.20. And it says of that woman... Actually, let's go to Revelation 2.20. I have to turn there. It's too good a verse to not turn to. Revelation 2.20. Hold your place in Kings. We'll flip right back to Kings. Revelation 2.20. All right. He tells the church at Thyatira, I'm not going to go into all that, what Thyatira represents, you know, the time in history that Thyatira represents, the Dark Ages, roughly like 500 to 1000 AD, and uh, just so much mess going on in the church history at that time. And it says in verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, this is the church at Thyatira, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Wow! So that old Jezebel there, that false spirit, that false house, that false system is trying to get some people to eat something in their worship service. That's idolatry. Do I have to like do this and like tell you what that is? Right? Can some of the ex-Catholics in the room probably figure out what that's all about? There's a system out there that's saying you got to eat something if you're going to worship God. You know where that started, right? That started in Genesis chapter 3. you got to eat something so that you can be as gods. It's just following suit, man. Something you got to put in your mouth to somehow gain some kind of power so that you could be as gods. That's what's going on in churches all around the world today. Right? It's a big religion. I'm not hating on the people. I'm just attacking the system. Jezebel, that time period of Thyatira in Revelation 2 represents the time when that church, the Roman Catholic Church, was rising to power and compelling people 
to eat something and that Eucharist was being codified around that time. That Bible is written by God. That Bible points a finger and says that period of time is when you started seeing people eat things that was part of an idolatrous system and Jezebel's behind it. It's coming back you know, in force in the tribulation, but it's, it's already here and it really found its footing in that time of Thyatira. Now go back to 1 Kings. Let me show you some other parallels here. So Jezebel has a house. Jezebel is compelling people to eat things sacrificed to idols. Historically, doctrinally, inspirationally. 1 Kings 18, look at verse 19. I'll show you what Jezebel has. 1 Kings 18, 19. You see it? Say amen if you're there. Amen. Now therefore send and gather to me. This is... Um, it's Elijah's, Elijah's now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel. This is Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Baal 450 and the prophets of the groves 400. This is Elijah against 850 idolaters. What a, what a fight. Which eat at Jezebel's table. Right. So Jezebel's got a table where they're eating these things that are sacrificed to idols. That strange woman has got a house where she's trying to seduce the servants of God seduce people that want to know God, like your neighbors and your friends, and trick them into thinking you've got to eat this stuff to somehow appease God. You see, the Bible's all, it's all coming together. It's all, it's all there, even though I'm not making much sense of it. Uh, 1 Kings 21, let me show you something else about this Jezebel. 1 Kings 21, verse 25. 1 Kings 21, verse 25. 1 Kings 21, verse 25. <clears throat> you ever notice... When I start getting on stuff like that, how uncomfortable it makes you feel. How the air gets a little tense. And you start to be like, I hope Pat moves past this point. I wonder if anybody's in the room. Is this going to offend anybody? That's that spirit in the world, man, that just doesn't like you talking about what's being talked about. Our brethren in the past, the King James translators, you know who they identified as the man of sin, right? Have you ever read your epistle dedicatory to your King James Bible? You know who they called the man of sin, right? The Pope himself. They said, that's the man of sin. They warned against popish persons. So we have a heritage here of standing for the truth and exposing lies and error. Not out of anger, but just that's the truth. And in uh, 1 Kings 21-25, look what it says here. Uh, But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. Jezebel is the one pulling the strings. Jezebel is that system behind the scene that's moving and shaking and working out all these things and all these operations that Ahab is involved in. That's a picture of what's going on in the tribulation, right? When that false religious system is really what's working on behind the scenes for the devil to accomplish his purposes in the world. And you know what, on a practical level, ladies, um, it's a picture doctrinally how the Antichrist is going to run the world through that false religious spirit and that false religious system. Got it. Check. Got that doctrinal part. But let me just slip a little practical thing in here. It's also a practical warning not to be that kind of woman. Right? You don't want to be called the Jezebel. <laughs> you don't want somebody thinking you're a Jezebel. You know what Jezebel did? She stirred her husband up to do evil when you should be standing behind him to do good. And some women stir their husbands up and kind of throw a wet blanket on their righteousness and get him to do things that he shouldn't do or stop him from doing things that he would like to do for God. And they stir him up to do evil and draw away from God when that lady, if she knows what's good for her, should stand behind her husband to try to do right by God because she'll be blessed in the process. I just thought I'd slip that in. That was free. Now go back to 1 Kings chapter 17. 
You all got halos over you. Don't worry. I know I'm talking about anybody here. All right. First Kings 17. Now look what happens in this scene, right? With Ahab and Jezebel on the scene, pictures of the Antichrist and that strange woman, that evil spirit and that false system. Look who shows up. First Kings 17.1. Like, like just steps onto the scene. Elijah. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. If you've read your Bible, Elijah shows up on the scene like Elijah will show up in the great tribulation preaching. Revelation 11. Boom, he's there. He shows up and he's preaching against the Antichrist just like that. Look at that. In Revelation 11, I'm not going to flip there, but if you're taking notes, mentally or physically, Elijah is one of those two witnesses, right? There's two witnesses in the book of Revelation that are preaching for those three and a half years. Elijah and Moses. The law and the prophets, right? Elijah and Elijah represents the prophets. Moses represents the law. And I want to show you some other parallels to Elijah here and Elijah in the Great Tribulation. What is he threatening in verse 1? He's going to hold back the rain. You know what's going on in the book of, uh, in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 6? Elijah is shutting up heaven that there is no rain. He did it here, and he does it in the future. Look at chapter 19, 1 Kings 19. You know what's going to happen? What's going to happen to Elijah? 1 Kings 19, 1. Here's the forerunner of it. See 1 Kings 19, 1? And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. This is when Elijah whacked the prophets of Baal and all his idolatrous prophets. And with all, how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. What's going on here? He's hunted by Jezebel. You know in the book of Revelation, Elijah loses his head. To that system. They hunt him and they eventually kill him at the end of those three and a half years. God lets them, he gets his head taken off. Elijah, think about it. He hasn't died yet, Elijah. But he will die in the Great Tribulation. He'll be resurrected, but he's going to die because that system is going to persecute him and chase him and hunt him just like Jezebel wanted to take his life in the book of 1 Kings. And then we don't have to turn there, but in 2 Kings, we know what happens to Elijah. He's taken up into heaven. Amen. Like Elijah is raptured in the Great Tribulation, see Revelation 11, verse 12. So these chapters here are a great picture. You got to start seeing the pictures because it's not going to be like God doesn't say the reboot, the tribulation's like this. You got to start seeing the similitudes and the pictures and the shadows, and then you start putting it together. And you know what? You got to work for it a little bit because God's, some things God will put right there with all the cookies, you know, plate high for everybody to get. Like salvation is easy to get. Hey, you want to figure out the great tribulation? You want to figure out what's going to happen in the future? You're going to have to look to the past and to start seeing the parallels by reading your Bible and putting one and one together to make two. Now let's go to chapter 21. This is where we really sink our teeth in here now. 21. All right. 21. Are we doing okay? Say amen. Okay. 21 is about Naboth and his vineyard. Now here's one of those pictures. Here is a great picture of the devil and what the devil's doing, and what the devil's after. Can I give you a little 
preview to flush your ego down the Fresh toilet. Juice. The devil's really not interested in you. Amen. You're not that big a deal. I mean, maybe if you go lead a million souls to Christ tomorrow, maybe he'll step into New Jersey and say, I need to handle this. But he gets his little minions to mess with you. He's after much bigger things, much bigger things. And uh, in 1 Kings 21.1, your biggest enemy is the guy you saw in the mirror today. That's your biggest enemy. All right. 1 Kings 21.1 says, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Naboth has a vineyard that Ahab wants to take for himself. Okay? What are the doctrinal pictures in this account? Well, the vineyard, the vineyard represents Jerusalem. Jerusalem, right? The vineyard represents Jerusalem. That's what God planted in a very fruitful hill, Isaiah 5 says, right? That's that fruitful hill that God has. That's that apple of his eye, right? And that's what Ahab wants. And Ahab represents, right? Ahab would represent the devil himself. And the devil is after the vineyard. He wants Jerusalem, brethren. He wants Jerusalem. And if you really look back in your Bible, it says that Lucifer had a throne. I would imagine that his throne was right there. I bet his throne was right there in Jerusalem. Why are they fighting over this little piece of dirt? Right? Go to Wyoming. Beautiful, right? Why this little piece of dirt in the middle of the Middle East? Why are they going so crazy for it? Because that's where a throne was, and that's where a throne will be. All right? Now, Naboth represents Jesus Christ. His throne will be there. It looks like Lucifer's throne was there when he, when he had a throne. And, it looks, and we know from the Bible that, Nab, that Jesus Christ will have a throne there. And of course, Jezebel, Jezebel, as we've said, is that false system and that false spirit that is working behind the scenes to accomplish the devil's will. So, ready to dig in? Let's go to verse 5 to 7, and let's see how that evil spirit, that evil system moves to get Jerusalem for the devil. And let's see all the parallels to Christ and what we know is going on. Verse number 5. Now, he can't get it. You know, Ahab tries to bribe him, and he doesn't get it. So Ahab comes in with his Twinkie and his thumb in his mouth. He says, I couldn't get the vineyard. I wanted the vineyard. I couldn't get it. Jezebel says, honey, let me take care of it, right? Because I'll take care of it. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, why is thy spirit so sad that thou hast eaten no bread? I mean, you just got that Twinkie, Ahab. What's going on, man? And he said unto her, that's my adding in there. And he said unto her, because I spake unto Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else, if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Man up, boy, is what she's saying. Arise and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now let's see how this evil system works and moves to accomplish the devil's plan. Ready? Verse number 8. 
Verse number eight. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. Number one, that unholy woman, like that unholy spirit, seduces the leaders. You see that? Seduces the leaders of Israel. What is the parallel? That's just like the devil moves in the hearts of the elders of Israel to crucify Christ. That spirit moved in those elders to just want to gnash on him with their teeth. These were grown men, educated men, religious men. They were biting Stephen. They were like, like, like wanting to try. They attacked him like an angry mob. We've seen some of that stuff. When... Papa came to town one time many years ago. We went street preaching and Papa was riding in the Papa mobile, you know, the bulletproof grass, because he's the vicar of Christ, so you need bulletproof glass because the vicar of Christ can get shot. But anyway, he's driving down in the city and we're preaching and as you know what it looked like? The east side of Manhattan looked like it had been turned into the third world. They were charging us. They would circle us. They would chant at us. They would scream at us. It was a very, very strange experience. And we weren't being hateful and nasty. we just go with as groups of people, and we were just preaching Christ crucified. We weren't preaching death to the Pope or death to the church. We were just preaching Jesus Christ, and they would circle us and bang drums. and uh, It got crazy. It got wild, man. You know what? You see some religious people going crazy. Why? Because there's a spirit. They wouldn't do that on their rational faculties, but a spirit moving through them to take the miracle worker, Jesus Christ, who'd raise the dead, open the eyes of the blind, and preach peace and the liberty to the poor, you're going to crucify him? How does that make any logical sense? Because logic wasn't working in that day. A spirit was working in their hearts and filling their hearts. Read verse 9. Want to see some more parallels? And she wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast. The Pharisees fast off and set Naboth on high among the people and set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. Number two, Jezebel conspires to condemn Naboth with two false witnesses. Like the two false witnesses that testified against Jesus Christ. Two false witnesses. You know what the biggest witnesses, by the way, are against your King James Bible? Two false witnesses, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Two false witnesses that don't even agree with each other, like those witnesses in Jesus' day didn't agree with each other to try to condemn your Savior and condemn that book. But she got two false witnesses to come out against Naboth, and they got two false witnesses to condemn Jesus Christ. Is that coincidence? That's God. you got to see the pictures. Look at verse 11. And it was during a religious observance. Jesus died during the feast days, right around the feast days. Right? Proclaim a fast. Right? Look at verse number 11. Keep reading. And the men of the city, even the elders and the nobles, um, who were the inhabitants in the city, did as Jezebel had sent them, as it, and as it was written in the letters, which she had sent unto them, they proclaimed a fast, and set Naboth on high among the people. And there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. They falsely condemned Naboth, Naboth for blasphemy. What did the high priest rent his garment and say? He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witness? 
parallels. Keep going. Verse 13. It's like God is writing this in neon letters so all the dumb people like me can't miss it. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. They took Naboth outside the city and killed him. They led Jesus Christ to Calvary, Golgotha, that was outside the city and crucified him. And then verse 15. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Israelite, to take possession of it. After Naboth died, Ahab takes possession of the vineyard, and like the enemy seizes Jerusalem temporarily, after Jesus Christ dies on the cross. I mean, man, it has been a fight. Throughout history, Satan has used his system to steal Jerusalem from Jesus Christ and from God. I mean, the Crusades, man, 1000 AD, what were they fighting about? Jerusalem. I mean, it's always been about Jerusalem. The devil wants Jerusalem. And it's a big, big deal. Now, notice something very interesting in verse 17. Paragraph marker. And then it says, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Please notice, there is no pause between the death of Naboth and the arrival of Elijah. There's just a paragraph mark, which represents like a a change in thought. See, what is that all about? You understand that if this was doctrinal, right, the church age is in there. Christ dies. And the the Great Tribulation happens when Elijah starts preaching. But it goes from one to the other with just a paragraph marker. Why? Because the church was hidden in the Old Testament. There was no break as far as they saw between the suffering Savior and the coming King, between the cross and the Great Tribulation. Man, those apostles are preaching in the beginning of the book of Acts, save yourselves, right? There's wrath to come. They knew something was coming. They knew wrath was coming. There was no break there. And then God said, time out, (laughs) and put this thing called the church age in there, which was a hidden mystery that you didn't see in the Old Testament. You see that there. It goes from Naboth dying to Elijah showing up, right? Verse 18. Uh, Verse 18 is a picture of the Antichrist in Israel as Elijah is preaching. He's in the vineyard in the Great Tribulation. He's in Jerusalem in the Great Tribulation when Elijah comes up to preach. Do we see that doctrinal picture? If not, ask somebody else. Now, I, I take a phone call or a text. I'm happy to clarify it. I get excited and I talk too fast. So, just want to show you that picture there. But let me bring it to some practical, spiritual, inspirational truths you can take from this account. Want something? Here's something you could take home. I got one more thought after this, but this is something to sink your teeth into. This is for your heart, not for your head. Ahab is the devil, check. Practically. But Naboth... Naboth could be you, the Christian, on a practical level. And you know what the devil wants? He wants your vineyard. He wants your inheritance. He wants what God has left for you. That's what the vineyard was. Look at 1 Kings uh, 21. Yeah, look at 21, verse 2. Look what it says there. Here's the temptation. Ready? See if this doesn't ring a bell. 
And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs. What grows in a vineyard, class? Grapes, not herbs, right? You don't grow your cannabis in the vineyard, right? You grow grapes, right? This was for grapes. This was for wine. This was for fruit. He says, I want it for something else. I want it for some herbs. I want it for, you know, for something else I want to put there. What does that mean? The devil wants to take what God has given you and change it for his purpose. So you don't bear fruit. You bear what he wants to see you bear. You bear something that's not fruit. Ahab wants to use Naboth's vineyard, which is supposed to be fruitful for a garden of herbs. And the devil wants to take your life, your talents, your resources, your gifts, and use them for his purposes. Man, I look across the auditorium and there's so much ability in there. There's so much talent in there. There's so much stuff that we could do. Man, if I could only just climb inside people's heads and light a fire, my goodness, what we could accomplish in Monmouth County and New Jersey and you know all the areas around us. Man, but you know what? The devil takes your strength, your time, your talents, your money, your resources, your zeal, your, all this stuff that God's given you and equipped you with, and he says, it's not going to be used for fruit. I'm going to use it for a garden of herbs. He wants you to sell out for him. Look, it's it's right there in the verse. He says, hey, because it's near unto my house, and I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it. Or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. You know what the devil's trying to get you to do? He's trying to get you to sell out. He knows your price. Is it convenience? He says that because it's near to my house convenient. I'll give you something better. Is it comfort? I'll give you something better. The devil says, I'll give you something better. You've been waiting on God and he hasn't answered that prayer request. I'll give you that guy. I'll give you that girl. I'll give you that promotion. I'll give you that money. You just got to do it my way. You got to just put God on the side and do it my way and I'll hook you up. See, the devil's just trying to get you to sell out. Trying to get you to sell out. Or maybe cash is your price. He says, if you don't want it for that reason, I'll buy it from you. Mm, it's, it's an amazing illustration. And look at Naboth's response. Would to God we would have this response. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. You know what he says to Ahab? Sorry, Ahab, I'm not for sale. I'm not for sale. It's not for sale. And we need some Christians to step up to the temptation and step up to the world and step up to the devil and step up to the flesh and all those things that want to take you away and take what God's done with you and could do with you and use it for the devil. You know what? You want to give it to God and say, you know what? I'm not for sale. What God has given me is not for sale. I'm not selling out to anyone but Jesus Christ. That's who you sell out to. Don't sell out to Satan. He just wants to use you. He wants to use you and kick you to the curb. That's what he wants to do. He wants to take you and entice you and use you and he would put your teeth on the curb and smash your face on the ground and walk on down the street and laugh while he did it and some of us are so stupid that the minute he comes and knocks on your door you think oh i think he really likes me it's not gonna happen to me you are can i just write dumb on your forehead any christian that thinks it's not gonna happen to you we never think it's gonna happen to us until it does until we're a sermon illustration somewhere. Don't be suckered, right? Don't sell out. And finally, chapter 22. 
chapter 22, is the, the death of Ahab. And the death of Ahab is a picture of the second coming of Christ. Because a battle happens, and there's a battle in this chapter, and it's a picture of the second coming of Christ when Ahab, who is a picture of the Antichrist, is mortally wounded. Praise the Lord. But what I want to just leave us with on chapter 22 is the confrontation in this chapter is a great, great lesson on preaching. And so I know some of you guys do some preaching and have a little preach in you and want to share the Word of God, whether it's in a message or on the street or with friends. And this is a great conviction to me and to everybody. Whoever wants to open their mouth for God, especially in the mode of preaching, how you should be. Let me show you some things about this. And I just got a few verses here, and then we'll be done. Uh, 22.7. Look at chapter 22.7. So... Ahab and Jehoshaphat are going to team up and go to Ramoth Gilead and all the false prophets are talking and, and uh, verse 7 says, and Jehoshaphat, he's the king of the south. He's a pretty good king. I don't know why he rolled with bad guys, but he, he's a pretty good king. Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him? And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imla, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. For he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. You know, it's kind of like, Oh, you don't say so. Really? He says some, oh, okay. So they bring him out. And I want you to notice, please, that the wicked hate a negative message. The wicked hate the negative truths of God's word. They hate it. He says, he says it right there. I hate him. I hate him. Preach on the street. Give the gospel to friends. I've seen people curse me out nose to nose when I'm preaching on the crucifixion of Christ. They say, I hate you. I've had them said to me, I hate you. I hate Jesus. I hate you. I hate that book. And I'm like, okay. I'll never forget. I had a, an Orthodox a Jewish man. Uh, I was trying to give him a track on the R train one time. And I ran. You know, he, he came to me. He said something nasty to me on one train. And then it was like a crossover on the other train. And he thought I was just going to sit there like a Gentile dog. And I crossed the platform and I went into the train where he was. And I talked to him some more. And, you know, I was going to leave him alone. It was cordial. I don't get nervous. And, you know, as the door was shutting, I said, man, Jesus died for you. And he looked at me with the smuggest face ever seen he said that's the greatest thing he ever did for me and he didn't mean it in terms of thankfully that he died for my sins i'm just glad that yeshua is dead and buried and gone now he's going to eat those words i hope he doesn't eat them i hope he doesn't eat them but he's going to eat them but you know what there's a hatred there right they hate the negative message of the bible if not we could pack it out on sunday that's why smiling joel you know he wouldn't dare talk about hell he wouldn't dare talk about sin. He would just talk about your best life now. Right? That's what he would talk about, right? He just wants to give you just something that sounds good. I want somebody that prophesies good. All he does is say evil. Hmm. Verse 12. And all the false prophets follow that suit. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. Man, you see all the false prophets are preaching a prosperity gospel. 
Oh, it's getting better. There's a great movement of God. There is a sound of abundance of rain, right? You know, just something. I just, in these last days, oh, I'm going I'm to I feel, I got a word coming, brother. I got a word coming, sister. You are dingbat, right? I feel, right? That's what happens. I got a great word, right? And oh, yeah, what's it mean? You're going to be rich and you're going to be healed and you're going to be, no one's ever going to be sick and it's going to be great. Where, what? <laughs> Prosperity gospel. <laughs> I see the greatest Christian that ever lived died alone and sick in a jail cell. And you think you're going to get your own plane and you're going to never be sick and everything's going to be wonderful and those people are going to look at you and say, what's wrong with you? We had a guy one time come to a Bible study many, many years ago and we still met in our house. And, I, and he, was a, he was of a certain persuasion that didn't think Christians would ever get sick. And when I brought up the story of Mel Sabaka getting prostate cancer so he can get into the cancer ward, this guy tried to rebuke me. I had to keep myself from ripping his face off because that was like insulting my grandfather. Like you're trying to imply that one of the greatest Christians I've ever known, Mel Sabaka, was out of the will of God because he prayed to get cancer so he can get into a cancer ward and witness to people with cancer and take that sacrifice. And he was like, oh, he, something was wrong with him. He was out of the will of God. I had to keep myself from jumping off the couch and tackling him. Because if you knew Mel Sabaka, he got pretty close to walking on water in a lot of our minds. I know he had warts and farts smelled too. I know he made mistakes, but he was a great man of God. And he was a great pastor and a great encouragement and just a great just great. I love the guy. And I only got to know him a little bit. So, But there's people out there you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise all the time. And there's that prosperity movement out there. It's right here, folks. It's right there. They're all jumping on top of each other. You're going to win. You're going to be victorious. God is with you. And they're making yokes of iron. They're going to break them. And yeah, and they're all running around like they're running the bases. Yeah. It's crazy. Verse 13. And the false prophets get Micaiah. And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spake unto him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets declare good unto the king. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about hell. We don't want to talk about righteousness or, or repentance. Sound it out, son. Sound it out. That's the word, repentance, right? And look what he says there. Um, Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them. And speak that which is good. You know what you see the false prophets are encouraging Micaiah to do? Let's be ecumenical. Let's all say the same thing. Can we just put our differences aside? What can we agree on? And let's just all agree to say something positive to lift everybody's spirits. And this guy is only in this one account of the Bible. But this dude is like a hero. We're going to go home on this dude because this guy... He's got to be in somebody's hall of faith somewhere. I don't know. We need to, I don't know. This guy is just somebody you should emulate because he's got everybody against him. The king's against him. The other preachers are against him. The nation's probably against him. Everybody's against him. And And Micaiah says, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. That makes me want to run the bases. That makes me want to run around, jump on a table, and and knock over a Komoseyama sign in this place, right? Just to have a guy have everything against him. Everything's against him. 
They're taunting him. He's been in prison. They drag him out. He's got a chance at being free. All he's got to do is dip the colors. All he's got to do is just cut the mustard a little bit and just kind of just dull the message a little bit and don't say everything God said. Just cut out the bad parts and say the good parts and he'd be free, man. He'd be back with his family and his friends and at Sonic having a shake. I mean, it'd be a wonderful time. And he says, I can't. I'm going to say what God told me to say. That is a man to be admired and followed. And even if, even though he stood alone, Micaiah stood for God's truth. Here's my challenge. Do you? Do you? One man with God is a majority. Do you? Even if you must stand alone, if you're going to preach the word of God, I'm preaching to myself too, you've got to stand for God's truth. God's truth is more important than souls. God stands for truth more than souls. Because he'll send some souls to hell for rejecting his truth. He doesn't want them to go to hell, but his truth is going to endure forever. It's going to endure. God is a God of truth, and he cares about the truth. And A.W. Tozer was an old preacher said, Let God be true, but every man a liar is the language of true faith. Do you believe? Do you have that spirit in you? Do you believe? I understand we're the minority of the minority. I get it. I get there's other Christian ministries within earshot of us that are bigger and flashier and doing more. So what? I've just got to do what the Bible says to do. And I don't care if they're doing something else. I'm not worried about what they're doing. I'm not checking up on them. But we've got to do what God says to do. We've got to preach what God says to preach. We've got to do it the way God says to do it. If we're the last one standing in the Alamo, we've got to do it the way God says. Spurgeon said this, Yet surely there must be some who will fling aside the cowardly love of peace and speak out for our Lord. And for his truth, a craven spirit is upon man, and their tongues are paralyzed. Oh, for an outburst of true faith and holy zeal. He's saying, man, if there would just be some guys that would say, come hell or high water, I'm just going to be like Micaiah and speak the truth. In love, but I'm going to speak the truth. Praise the Lord. I got one, go to Psalm 145, we're going to go home on this thought, my one big idea from the book of 1 Kings. I know there were many, but I just want to go home on this one. What's a theme or an idea? Psalm 145, verse 20. Psalm 145, verse 20. The Lord says, So if you're, if you're, if you're standing alone for God, and everybody thinks you're nuts, guess what? You're in good company. You're in the company of Micaiah. So don't give up. Psalm 145, verse 20. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. Here's the one big idea from the book of 1 Kings I want you to take home with you. Sin destroys everything. Simple. Sin destroys everything. Sin destroyed a man as great and wise as Solomon. Sin destroyed him. Sin destroyed a nation as great and prosperous as Israel. Don't think for a second that sin won't destroy you. If it destroyed Solomon and it destroyed Israel, it'll destroy you. Please hear this. If you're watching at home or you hear this recording in one year, five days, five months, whenever, you will not be the exception. So don't play with fire. 
if you don't take heed of the warning, like Solomon didn't take heed of the warning, like Israel didn't take heed of the warning, you will be destroyed. There is no exception to this. There is no out, no clause. Solomon had a special relationship with God. But sin still took him down. Israel was God's chosen nation, but sin took them down. And you may be saved, you may be washed in the blood, but guess what? As far as this side of heaven, sin can take you and will take you down if you trifle with it. There are no exceptions. Please take heed to the warning. Let's bow our heads.